Well, good evening to you. I love the crowds that have gathered together for our evening services as of late. Our Sunday night crowd has been incredible, um, been awesome, really. I think we had uh, almost 250 people here on this last Sunday night. That's a, that's a great number, post-COVID at least. And uh, we're thankful that our attendance is slowly starting to build up on Sunday mornings again. And, uh, and our Wednesday night service has been so good. I hate to even, you know, break it up and go to, go to the kids' clubs. I know our church needs it. It's going to be good. It's great. But, man, this, is, this has been a, a good shot in the arm in the midweek, at least for me, um, to come and just everybody be together, the kids be with us, and, and things like that. Uh, looking forward to the kids having their ministries, and that's so vital uh, to the next generation of our church and, and to all those that serve in those ministries. I am certainly grateful. That'll start pretty quick, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss seeing a lot of you in here uh, in our midweek service. But for those that are going to come in here once we split up, here's what you can expect. A full dose of Bible preaching. We're, we're not going to um, give you just a, a little bullet point lesson. I don't care if there's two people in here. I'm going to preach to you. And uh, it's because I really believe, I really believe this, that, that, that if we're going to come out on a midweek service after being at work all day um, and going to work tomorrow, we better have some purpose when we come here. It's, it's not just going to be going through the motions. And, and if I expect you, and, and, and I certainly do, um, to be in your place on Wednesdays, in spite of working and going through the stress of the day, then, then here's what you can expect of me, my very best. And with God's help, I'm going to give that to you, even if it's just 50 of us in here. You're going to hear me preach to you like I've been preaching the last four or five weeks. And so I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you'll, you'll, you'll keep Wednesday nights on as a priority for you and your family to worship. Psalms chapter 34, if you haven't figured that out yet. Before we get there, I'm going to read to you out of 1 Samuel 21. That'll be on the screen, and this is going to give you the story behind where this psalm was written. Now listen, if this sounds familiar, it's because we just talked about this in 1 Samuel 21. He wrote two psalms based on this situation in his life. And so let me reread uh, just five verses for you so, so we can remind you where we're at. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart, and were sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Well, yeah, he should be. And he changed his behavior before them, and feigned or faked himself mad in their hands, and scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man that is mad? Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen? I, I think he was implying, you are the, the madmen I have to deal with every day. I don't need another one. That ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. So when King Saul, David's father-in-law, betrayed him, David ran. And on the run he wrote Psalms 59. He ran to Gibeah, then he ran to Ramah, then he ran to Nob. Then he made a really stupid decision. He ran to Gath, 
Let me remind you why I call this a stupid decision. Because it's the hometown of Goliath. The Philistine wonder boy who David killed himself. Not only did he go to Gath, but he had Goliath's sword strapped to his thigh. The sword he used to chop off Goliath's head. Not only that, he wasn't on the outskirts of Gath. He was in the midst of their people. Many family members were looking him dead in the eye and he killed their, do- their, their sons or, or their fathers, their husband. David knew at this moment, now picture this, the next few minutes of his life and what he would decide to do in this moment would determine the longevity of his life. So you know what he did? He started acting stupid. The text said he changed his behavior. The heading before Psalms 34 even says that he changed his behavior. So David started to act like a madman. He even started to drool as though he was out of his mind. Now now I want you to think about how desperate this move was. David was the teenage boy who has stood toe-to-toe with Philistia's greatest warrior when no one else dared to take him on. That's David. Yet here he was now playing the part of the village idiot to save his own skin. But his stupidity wasn't lost on the king. We read it. The king said, get the madman out of here. And so you got to give David prop. His theatrics were skillful and successful enough at saving his life in that moment. But don't miss this. They were also very humiliating. Deeply humiliating. Which makes me ask, what are you supposed to do after humiliating yourself like that? Drooling down your beard. Scraping at the iron gates. Acting like you're a madman. What do you do when you humiliate yourself like that? Well, usually you do what David did. You hide. You get as far away from the people you embarrass yourself in front of. And David ran to the cave of Dulem. John Kitchen makes an acronym out of the word hide in the context of what we tend to do after making really bad, stupid decisions. And he's pretty right on. These are the things we feel. Humiliation, indignity, disgrace, and embarrassment. I think David felt every one of those emotions as he was wiping the spittle from his beard, running as far away from Gath as he possibly could. And so do we when we do something stupid, don't we? I'll go ahead and ask you. Don't answer out loud. I feel like I need to say that for some people. What is the stupidest thing you've ever done? They say that's the question that's raised when the party gets dull. And it makes sense because in some weird way we love laughing at the stupidity of others. Right? I mean, it's just fun. Like, if if Clayton were to tell me the stupidest thing he's ever done, I would like to hear that. But if he asked me to tell him, I wouldn't like to tell him. And, And when it would circle back to you, you wouldn't celebrate your own stupidity. I mean, occasionally the passing of time allows us to kind of laugh our way through our blunders and joke about our stupidity decades ago, but not until after we've hurt for a while. I recall taking a phone call when I was a youth pastor for a young man I've been mentoring and throwing my life into for at least two years by this time. And he just turned 18. And I got a phone call from him late at night, and he was calling from the Seward County Jail. He had done something stupid. He he got granted one phone call and he decided to call his youth pastor. And I asked him, what happened? And this is all he could say while he was sobbing. I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. I'm so 
stupid. Life's stupidest moments are not things we celebrate. They're not. They're not things we talk about. They're not things we write songs about. That's why when you first read Psalms 34 and hear David say things like this, I will bless the Lord at all times. And when you hear him say in verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, it seems out of step with the story of stupidity behind the psalm. He just acted like a madman, humiliated himself. Yet through David's choice to pray through his humiliation, here's what we learn in this psalm in this statement. Pay attention. Our greatest humiliation can become one of our most profound moments of fellowship with God. But it's only if and when we choose to pray through. Not pray about our stupid thing. Not pray around it. Pray through it. Psalms 34 is the result of God transforming one of the stupidest things David ever did into a summons to deep and intimate and close fellowship with him. There are two things we learn in this psalm about how to pray through our most humiliating moments. Here's the first. Pray through your humiliation until you can worship God good as you despise your failure. I want you to think about the context again. David ran to the cave. He was just following his natural instincts. He was hiding from his stupidity. But though he hid himself physically, he knew better than to hide himself spiritually because that would only make his situation worse. By the way, whenever you run from God, even after your own stupidity, you're only making it worse. Instead, he chose to worship God's goodness Instead of following his natural instincts and and, and rehearsing over his own stupidity, verse 1 and 2 show us how committed his worship was. Look, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Do you see the commitment in David's worship? He said, I will bless the Lord. He says, his praise shall be continually in my mouth. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. And it wasn't a one-time commitment. He didn't do something stupid, go to church on Sunday to clean up, and then go back to living stupid. This, this was more than a one-time commitment because he said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Worship during our low times, especially the low times that we bring upon ourselves, requires more than feelings of well-being. It requires a firm commitment to who God is. Is Listen to me, church, the key to overcoming our shame in the midst of our stupidity is is a committed focus on somebody other than ourselves. Somebody that never acts stupid. That's God. Nothing is accomplished for good following your, your own humiliation when all you do is focus on yourself or throw yourself some kind of pity party. The truth is we get ourselves in humiliating situations in the first place because all we're focusing on is ourselves. So you would, you would think that David would start Psalms 34. He would tuck himself away in a cave and he would start wallowing in self-pity and he would write some, what you would hear on country radio station. A depressing song. He didn't even mention that. He instantly went into worshiping his God, now listen, you may feel embarrassed by what you did, but God isn't embarrassed. You're his child. 
His love for you is unconditional. His goodness towards you is unconditional. And the first step to praying through humiliation is to commit to worship God's goodness in spite of your sinfulness. But notice that David's worship was also corporate. Look at verse 3. Here's here's where we get the chorus of the song we just sang. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name. Next word out loud, together. 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 (laughs) I gave it to you. David wasn't, listen, just committed to private worship. He invited others to join him. Which is not what we naturally desire after we do something stupid and embarrass ourselves. Oftentimes when I'm talking to people about coming to our church, or when I talk to them after they've come and it took them a long time to get the courage to come, you know what the most common excuse is that I hear? I just don't feel worthy. Honestly, I hear that so many times. They really truly feel like because they did this or did that or they have this past, that until they can get their act together, until they can get the right kind of clothes, until they can make better decisions, they're not really worthy to come and worship God. You see, the last place people want to go when they're living in sin and humiliating themselves and doing stupid things, the last place they want to go is church. They want to go to a cave. The last people they want to be around is is, is God's people. The last thing they want to do is, is be around people that are living right. But here's my answer to that. When you don't want to come to church is when you need church the most. When you don't want to be around God's people is when you need God's people the most. When you don't want corporate worship is when you need to worship together the most. And by the way, we ought to be the kind of church where people know they're welcome and they'll be loved even after doing stupid things. Some of the meanest and most unforgiving people I've ever met are inside a church. May that not be said of us. We're all prone to do stupid things. It's just that most of us have learned to cover it up better than others. So when we come on Sunday, we don't look like we're prone to to do stupid things. Little did they know that you just had a minivan transformation in the parking lot. David's worship was committed. His worship was corporate. His worship was contemplative. Look at verse 4 through 7. I sought the Lord, and he heard me. And delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivered them. Do you see what David's contemplating in his worship to God? He's contemplating the Lord's goodness in that the Lord heard him. He delivered him. He protected him and even changed his countenance. Now this is significant. Because after we've done something stupid, we feel unworthy. We feel so embarrassed that we don't feel like anyone thinks good of us, let alone wants to listen to us. But David was contemplating the fact, watch here, that he may have been alone in that cave and he may not have had the ear of anybody else, but God still listened and God still heard and God still thought enough of him to deliver him and protect him. And it's from those thoughts in verses 4 through 7 that David burst out with worship. And all he could say was this, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what real worship is. It's our glad response to the goodness of God. You'll hear that definition again on Sunday afternoon out of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Worship is our glad response 
to the goodness of our God. Man, I'm going to give you a quote, and I, I, I should have put this on the screen, and I didn't. But, but I need you to listen close, because this is explaining the point that David has gotten to here in the first eight verses. You ready? David was reduced to a place of utter humility through his own stupidity. But he found that it was there, in that low place, where he could drink of God's goodness deeply enough to never forget its taste. I, I take it you're thinking about it. I'm going to read it again so I can get at least a few more head nods. David was reduced to a place of utter humility through his own stupidity. Listen, please. But he found that it was there, in that low place, where he could drink of God's goodness deeply enough to never forget its taste. This cult makes me think of when I was a kid and I had to take cough medicine. I hated the taste of cough medicine as a child. My son has followed in my footsteps. I hated it. It was bitter. So I would always have a big glass of water right beside me. You know, I'd have these, you know, like just that much cough medicine. I'd have this much water. And I would, I would chug the cough medicine and I'd just start gulping down the water to get that, that bitter taste out of my mouth. And slowly that water would wash away the bitter taste of the medicine. And, and that's what happens, listen, when we pray through our humiliation. Because being humbled brings a bitter taste to our mouth. The taste of embarrassment is not good. Bad choices leave us feeling silly. But when you let that humiliation bring you close enough to God where you start tasting of his goodness, like his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness to you in spite of your failures, here's what happens. The taste of God's goodness will slowly start to wash out the bitter taste of your stupidity. How do I know if I pray through my humiliation? If you've allowed your humiliation to bring you to that point, low enough to taste deeply of God's goodness and grace, enough of it where you can't help but worship him for, much, for what he's done as much as you despise what you did. And that's really good preaching, Brother Tanner, and me and you think so. That's not the only truth. There's one more in verses 9 through 11. Actually, it's the rest of the psalm, but we'll start in verse 9 through 11. Look at it. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints. For there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Here's our last truth. Pray through humiliation until you fear God more than you fear man. Think about this. Why did David act stupid in the first place? He feared man. And Solomon says that the fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. Our stupidest moments, our most humiliating decisions are generally, generally made because we fear man more than God. That's why we buy things we don't need with money we don't have because we want to impress people we don't even like. Think back to your teen years, to the stupidest things you did. You probably didn't do them by yourself. You probably did them with people you were trying to impress. David's prayer hasn't just led him to worship it's led him to wisdom. He learned this. It's better to fear God than man. He learned this. There are less humiliating moments in life when you live for the approval of God than when you live for the approval of man. And so the rest of the psalm gives us a, a, some specific things that the fear of God brings. If it's so much better than fear in man, so much better than putting yourself in embarrassing situations, why? Convince me, pastor. 
All right, here's the first. The fear of God brings contentment. Did you see where he says in verse 9, for there is no want to them that fear him? And then he used the young lions as an illustration. He said, they do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. What is he saying? He's using, he's using the most fierce and tactical hunter in the animal kingdom, the lion, and says, even they're unsuccessful at times in their hunt. Even they, as tactical and as skilled and as, as, as mean as those animals are, they go hungry. But that will not be said of those who fear God. It will not be said of those that seek first the kingdom of God. He will give his children what they need when they need it as they fear him and put him first. And God did that for David. All you got to do is study. He was in the cave of Dulam. We'll get there in our first Samuel series. He was only by himself for so long. And then God provided him some men. Now we're going to see real quick they were a ragtag group of losers. But David trained them up. And those same men served as his army to protect him and to help him escape Saul's army. And those same men actually became David's mighty men of valor. Because God showed to David, fear me, worship me. Stop putting yourself in situations where you got to fear men and act stupid and watch how I'll provide for you. The fear of God, number two, it produces righteousness. Look at verse number 12. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. When you fear God more than you fear man, listen, here's the result. Righteous words, righteous deeds, and righteous pursuits. You see, David learned that the fear of man led to his most idiotic decisions. His most inauthentic behavior. He wasn't true to himself, and it brought him no peace. It landed him alone in a cave. But as he prayed through his humiliation, watch, a healthy fear of God began to fill his heart, and he learned what it meant to fear God more than fear men. And here's what it produced, healthy desires and, and righteous words and righteous thoughts, and all of a sudden he wanted to pursue righteous things. And that's what praying through will, will produce in us. It will help us overcome the unrighteous behavior that comes with fearing man. And it will produce the righteous behavior that comes with fearing God. I love that. Here's the last one. The fear of God draws God's attention. Now look at your Bible with me. 15 through 22. You ready? The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And his ears are open unto their cry. Now let these words sink in. These are this incredible truth. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Here's the point. When you choose to run to God after humiliating moments, and you choose to pray through until you fear him more than you fear man, he likes that. Verse 15 says his eyes will be upon you. Verse 17 says he'll be open to your cry. Verse 18 says his presence will surround you. Verse 19 and 21 says he will keep you. He'll protect you. Verse 22 says his grace will redeem you. I could go and give you an exposition of all those verses if I had time, but I'm going to pick one. I'm going to pick one aspect 
of how it gets God's attention and it's my favor, His grace will redeem you. God doesn't promise, listen, to erase your stupidest moments from the records of history. But He does promise to redeem them. In fact, we're going to see real quick, David proves God already has redeemed your regrets. He actually already has made those right. David prayed in verse 20, look at your Bible again. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. That verse has a twofold purpose. Number one, it was David's testimony. David believed in his heart by faith that because he feared God, and he was no longer putting himself in stupid situations to make stupid decisions, that God was going to protect him so much so that even though an army was after him, not a bone of his body would be broken. But it also served after this point as a messianic prophecy. Because it's pointing to the death of Jesus on the cross. A lot of psalms do that, by the way. And this particular psalm is saying that they're going to kill Jesus' body. They're going to hurt his body without breaking his bones. Now, how are they going to do that by way of crucifixion? Well, just, it happened according to John 19, 36. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Now you're thinking, what does all that have to do with praying through my humiliation? Listen, we often look back and obsess over past failures and stupid moments and think to ourselves, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I text that? Why did I post that? Why did I go there? We look back. This psalm is teaching us that Jesus looked forward to our worst moments. He looked forward to our most humiliating moments and he declared, put them on my account. And though his bones weren't broken, his blood was shed so that our stupidest, most sinful moments could be redeemed. All the sinful and stupid things that we have done, Christ paid for on the cross. He went to his lowest point so that our lowest point didn't have to be the end of our story. We'll all do stupid things, church. We all will. We'll all get ourselves in bad situations where we act in bad ways and it's embarrassing and it's humiliating. We'll want to run and we'll want to hide, but we must choose to pray through because when we do, we get God's attention and we'll soon realize that his grace is enough to redeem our deepest regrets. So if you walked into church feeling stupid, no, you said something at work today. Did something to your spouse today. Treated your teachers or your parents some way today. Posted something stupid today. Well, God stands ready to redeem that. He's already made the way. All you've got to do is come. Verse uh, 18, broken and contrite spirit. And he redeems that. Yeah. So you remember why he wrote this psalm? He he writes this psalm to teach us that our greatest humiliation can become one of our most profound moments of fellowship with God. Tell you a quick story, I'll be done. In the 1830s, a British naturalist, now now everybody's going to zip up their Bibles, hold up a second. I I shouldn't have ever said that, I'm learning that, Dad. I can't say it, everybody checks out. I have a hard time keeping you from checking out 10 minutes into the message. And I'm preaching my guts out on a Wednesday night. So stay with me, man. I know y'all are, can't wait, but 
Give me a second. Give me five more minutes. Come on. You're so greedy. In the 1830s, a, a British naturalist named Edward Forbes, after studying the depths of the Atlantic and, and Mediterranean, declared this, that no life existed in the seas below 2,000 feet. The pressure, he presumed, was simply too much. He says that, that, that the pressure on the ocean's floor is so extreme that it would equal 300 jumbo jets set upon a man's chest. I mean, a man can't even survive the will of a jumbo jet, the tire of a jumbo jet sitting on his chest, let alone three jumbo jets. He said this, he concluded this, Forbes did, no creature can survive at such debts and under such pressures. Fast forward 30 years from when he studied that. 30 years later, a crew who was repairing transatlantic telegraph cables hauled up portions of the line from over two miles down in the ocean. And to everyone's surprise, they found the line covered with living creatures. I tell you that story because I think when it comes to our stupid decisions and humiliating moments, we're a lot like Edward Forbes. We too quickly conclude that we will never survive the depths of humiliation. So we hide in a cave. We declare the pressures of our stupidity unlivable. But those who fear God, those who turn to Him in worship, those who pray through, watch here, will find that such humiliating moments in life are not only livable, but there is actually a quality of spiritual life that can be had in no other place than the place of humiliation. And that's as deep as it gets. Closing statement. There are depths of fellowship with God only possible for those who pray through at the depths of their most humiliating When you do something stupid and you want to hide, reject that natural instinct and instead worship. Instead, let the humiliating moment get you low enough to where you can taste the depths of God's goodness more than you can feel the misery of your failure. And then get up from your knees and fear God more than you fear man. And learn from stupid decisions. Learn, learn that your life is better when you live for the approval of God than it is when you live for the approval of man. Yeah. Here's the Psalms 34 prayer tonight. I'm going to invite you to the altar to pray this before we sing Psalms 34. You start by worshiping God for his goodness. This is how you pray through humiliation. Then you ask God to help you learn to fear him more than you fear men. Then you accept God's forgiveness. And don't, forget, don't, don't overlook that last one. Because we can pray through the first two and then get up and the devil. What, what does the Bible call the devil? The accuser of the brethren. And we can pray through, seriously pray through, and be convinced that we're ready to move through this and move past this. And it's not going to be five or ten minutes later. We're going to see something, think something, hear something that the devil will dang over our heads and remind us what we did. And we're going to have to pray through again. And he's going to remind us what we did again. 
And you're going to have to pray through until you can taste God's goodness enough where it washes away the bitterness of the devil's accusations. Are you seeing how prayer is such an important life, such an important part of the Christian life? Are you seeing that? Question, did you pray today? Not for your food. Did you go into your prayer closet today? Or did you get up too late again? How long has it been since you strung seven straight days together of praying? I mean, I mean praying. I'm not talking about family devotions. Those are good. I'm not talking about meals. Those are good. I'm not talking about church days. Those are great. I'm talking about private prayer. I'm talking about battling on your knees. When is the last time you put a week together of uninterrupted, meaningful, detailed, specific, deep levels of communion with your Father? If you don't do that, these messages are, are here's what they're going to do. They're going to seem like a good idea, but not be a reality. Exactly what happens when we preach on soul winning, and it sounds like a good idea, but you never go tell somebody about Christ after the message. It's not in here. And these praying through prayers have to be in here. It's got to be a belief. It's got to be a conviction. That you need prayer time with God every day, and I'm trying to load your prayer arsenal. I'm trying to give you some specific things and avenues through which to go to the Father in prayer. Not just one of these prayers, God help me today. Come on, let's get deeper than that with God. Let's learn how to pray through.